Hey all, and welcome to Unrooted, brought to you by Olmsted Wine Co. I'm your host, Max, and our guest today is Anna Maria Reka-Kantz, located in Barabbas, northeastern Hungary. Although Anna Maria is producing some really astounding stuff, she's relatively unknown. I first tasted her Blaufrankisch, a change of heart, when I was visiting friends, and I was so deeply affected I felt entirely out of the conversation. When I came back to my senses, I had to know more about what she was doing, but I couldn't find much information, and I thought, well, I can do something about that. that it's not a lot written about me, but it's, uh, I don't know, maybe also I don't do a big thing out of marketing myself, you know, mm-hmm. and I never really had to because people found me and I sort of had this uh, network from Scandinavia because I lived 11 years in Copenhagen and right now I'm mostly based in Hungary, but I still go back from time to time and uh, mm-hmm. there I had also worked in natural wine distribution and restoration and also that's where I met um, natural wine basically in Denmark so I had this network from over there which I brought with myself and then I started to produce wine so I didn't have to put a lot of effort into like putting myself out there and promote myself it just sort of happened and I let it that way (laughs) so I was born in Hungary here in uh, northeastern Hungary I grew up up here and I studied horticulture, uh, wine growing as my bachelor studies and then I went to do my master in Denmark also in agriculture but I focused on wine microbiology and I also worked with industrial yeast and um, laboratory stuff which was uh, really interesting. I got a good basic knowledge about fermentation and just uh, yeast uh, kinetics and all that but I didn't really want to stay and work with that. I wanted to do something else because I was already involved in the natural wine uh, mm-hmm. business as well. So I just couldn't match those two, even though the experience was really fascinating, but I didn't want to work with industrial wine. I got access to these old vineyards, which I purchased, and obviously a lot of work had to be done with them. And then it grew. So I sort of transitioned from living in Denmark, like coming back to Hungary, and I spent more and more time here. And now eventually I'm here like 80% of the year and 20 in Copenhagen because I need to be here now. And so six hectares of vineyards and almost five of them is in production. So I can't really be away now. Uh, be- before that, my dad helped with just taking care of them as much as he could. But we soon figured out that this is not the way to do things. And the result won't be as I would want it to be, obviously. And so after living abroad for 11 years, now I'm back. Mm-hmm. I grew up in my hometown, which is uh, it's nothing I expected, but it's just the way it is now. And it's and I like it, actually. And I still have the flat in Copenhagen. My, my husband is Danish and uh, he comes here as much as he can and helps me, but he still has a job in Denmark. So we are all over the place at the moment, but we make it work somehow. So that's what I studied. And then uh, because of being exposed to the natural wine uh, scene, like internationally, I traveled a lot. I took part in wine fairs and so on. 
uh, I just really wanted to try it myself, you know, and, uh, and I realized that, okay, I have this like really interesting terroir just where I grew up and it's a volcanic terroir. And even though it's just a really tiny place, this is basically a hill. It's not even 300 meters high, but the composition of the rocks is really interesting. It's mostly uh, rhyolite. It's typical to uh, or similar to some parts of Tokai, but then again, not really. It's similar because of the volcanic terroir, but then other like microclimate and other conditions are completely different. For example, uh, you know that the Tokai has the Bodrog River just running next to it, and that influences the climate a lot in there also, like botrytis-wise. I don't really have that, and I have probably more dry conditions. And uh, also the vineyards are sort of, it almost feels like like it's me who doesn't belong there because it's Mm. this natural habitat, like a lot of wildlife and a lot of natural. It's not a forest, it's like a bushy area, but it Mm. could easily become a forest if I didn't kept it, you know, that it's not easy to farm there. I guess uh, if you have neighbors on many hectares, like in Toka, it's easier to keep an area clean, either diseases or like wild animals. So apart from that, the, the volcanic base soil is definitely influencing the wine. The topsoil is like a loamy, loess kind of. And I, I actually like that how it gives like a, a depth to, the, to a wine. And I, I don't just taste it on my own wine, but when I taste other winemakers' uh, wines, that are they were exposed to some kind of uh, loamy textured soil. It's uh, it's quite interesting to me. I mostly felt that in red wines though, and I only have white grapes on my heels. So, but still. Well, so could you talk a little bit about like what condition the the vineyards you purchased were, and like what were the steps you had to take to rehabilitate them? They were different. I mean, some I bought in better condition, some in less good condition. But uh, those those were almost all of them were the vines were planted in 1970s, and that was a part of like a big uh, restructuring program during the communism in Hungary because before uh, there were no like terraces, or at least the terraces were facing a different direction, sort of like. From the top to the to the bottom of the the hill, uh, and they had bush vines like uh, mm. like in many old vineyards, you know. And we had four mint, and we had uh, riesling and Kodarka and kovidinka, all sorts of those traditional old grapes. And but that obviously was not enough to produce quantities, so so they they ripped them up and they made the terraces artificially. So actually they had to fill soil in it, but they're still on the volcanic rock base. And and there they planted mostly Kirai Lanka, which I have a lot of, and the Rhein Riesling and some food, I mean, like in a field blend, it was very normal before. And so when I bought my vineyards, there were still uh, these grapes and um, that's, that old wines from the 70s, mostly pruned, uh, just uh, like spur pruned, not always with a big expertise, I would say. That's why some of them already like uh, died by the time I bought the vineyards. They couldn't keep up with like big yields on one plant and bad pruning, like big scars and just no expertise really. So that's uh, what I had to work with. And uh, obviously I started to like change the pruning first and 
I planted a lot of cover crops, just restoring the soil. And of course, I I, I don't say I had to change to organic uh, production because that's how I started. So it's a lot of things I had to learn, you know, because you're being exposed to the natural wine scene and you think, okay, that's what I want to do. I, I would never spray anything like uh, systemic fungicide. I will never do this. I will never do that. No way I'm going to do that. And then you're not doing that. And then you realize, like, okay, this is actually a lot harder than I thought. We had all this white vegetation, like the rose hip, for example, like the white rose is just, and the sloan, it's it's just taking over the area if you if you look away for a minute. And those are actually host plants for uh, a lot of fungal diseases, also mm. like oidium, like mm. powdery mildew. So yeah, I, I had to do, I had to use sulfur, I had to do copper, I had to be aware that uh, it's a lot harder growing organic when you have those conditions where the the moist air can be trapped like mm. between your vineyards and the and the wild vegetation so but yeah uh gradually i i got an understanding of it and that's what i still do now and uh, just uh, trying to prune the vines like uh, not not uh, putting big scars on them and uh, mm. again lots of cover crops, changing cover crops. And I'm not certified of biodynamic or I wouldn't say I, I even do those practices, but some of them I do. But Which I ones? Just say I, they're like uh, plant uh, extracts. I'm using mm. like uh, nettle and other herbs, but I don't do the preparates. I, I don't do the cow's manure and the horn mm. stuff. And, you know. But uh, I, I, do, I do use a lot of herbal stuff uh, and, and they do work. They're really nice. I would just call it like regenerative agriculture because for me it's really about the soil and I started to see a lot of improvement after I started taking care of the soil and it just makes such a difference. So I had to do this with every vineyard I own and also just fixing stuff like fixing poles, fixing wires and like replacing wines that, that died and protecting the young wines from being eaten by mm -hmm. rabbits, which happens every hour basically yeah i have a new vineyard and uh the rabbits are uh they're very enthusiastic about it yeah they have a really shitty behavior i don't know <laughs> just like a chewy true like the the beautiful cane i just selected for next year and they leave it there it's a game for them <laughs> is this all just you and your and your dad helps not even my dad he's he's basically he, he doesn't do that anymore i think he just wanted me to get started so mm -hmm. i don't know if if he didn't like insist it on yeah you know i i know there are some vineyards for sale we should just have them and then we'll see it's mm. gonna be okay like his attitude is like yeah let's just start on it and then you will mm -hmm. see so if he if he wasn't like that i i probably wouldn't have started this but by now he's he's out of it and it's me doing it and I have just a few people helping me. My sister helps me and we have a tractor driver who is kind of, a, he, he does all sorts of things also. And we have seasonal workers, but it's really not many people. So. And how did you, uh, so, you know, you have a, you have a um, background in agriculture from a sort of academic angle. How did you start, like you said, you know, your, your education in fermentation and winemaking was not through the natural wine lens. Can you talk about how you started, like what some of your first experiences in the cell, in your own cellar uh, were like and what some of your sort of the early things you learned and how that's evolved over the last several years? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, I couldn't really compare my experience in the laboratory to what came after in my own cellar because there we just made like micro trials and mm. everything smelled like banana and passion fruit. So it was not nothing <laughs> close to what I experienced. So what I experienced back home, uh, I had uh, quite an easy time starting up with the fermentations for some reason, maybe like the equipment I bought from from previous owners, I just bought a press and, you know, just like basic stuff. And uh, I bought some plastic wet and nothing fancy really. And so fermentation went okay. Of, of course, I had stuck fermentations dependent on <clears throat> that year's uh, weather conditions. Like I remember in 16 and 18, some the summer was, no, the whole year was really like, arid and no water and so it's just no nutrients enough in the in the grape juice and that ended up in stock fermentation so fermentation took a really long time mm. but i never really well i don't recall anything like anything really bad i mean obviously i i, I did make vinegar <laughs> everyone does that when you start up <laughs> but you have to learn that i mean you had to learn like how much maceration is too much and how much oxygen is too much when you're macerating. And, you know, because you are being optimistic, you say, yeah, this is going to be fine. And then you realize that just in a few days, the, your VA can go up that high during maceration that that you just can't fix that afterwards. So, yeah, but it, it's just so many things like temperature, cellar temperature. I never really had like a proper cellar. I still don't have a cellar. cellar. I have a buildings <laughs> where I ferment the, but they're not underground which would be nice at some point what what now. is the what is the building is it like an industrial building or so where we have the farm I don't know if you are familiar with with the idea of this cooperative mm, sure. which were common during the communism so it's a state-owned mm. farm and mm. where my dad grew up uh, just the village next to my vineyards which are in Bodobash so so, so the neighboring village, I have my winery and that winery was an old uh, sawmill. So uh, people worked there uh, with, the, they made wood products like cases and boxes and what do I know. And, and that building was standing on the state farm, which my dad bought after the system change. He, he brought it pretty cheap and, and that building uh, I like refurbished into a winery. How much are you trying to create, you know, consistent cuvées every single year? And how much are you just trying to sort of like follow the year and be a little improvisational? Like, where do you think you fall? Like for the last few years, I I always had like things I I always made with, because they worked uh, like like the Eastern accents. OK, I I'm not in this game for a really long time either. So but <laughs> for the, I don't know, for the last two, three years, I, I had this idea of doing that just because I liked it and people liked it. So it was like 70% hash level and the rest was Kirai Lanka. But for example, this year I, I couldn't do it. So it's just going to be a uh, hash level and a bit of Sauvignon Blanc. So even though I wanted to make that wine, but I, I couldn't. So I was open to have something new as long as it tasted good. Yeah, I, I'd like to try new things, but 
It's also that the amount of grapes I have don't always allow me to have many experiments because then mm. I couldn't have a, a volume enough for like one wine. But I, I like to do experiments, but I'm also a bit, uh, you know, like uh, I'm really bad at taking notes or <laughs> bad at just, I would say, okay, I will for sure remember this next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. So I, I make few things and I forget about them and I just don't document the results very well. It, it happened that I made small batches and then I ended up blending them anyways because I just, I was too lazy to follow up on them. <laughs> this, is a, this is a bad thing. <laughs> if you have many vessel types or you have a forest, you have plastic, you have fiberglass, you have wood, then it's already like given to you that you have those different things and then you gain experience using them. So I guess the 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 more type of like um, <clears throat> vessels you buy or <clears throat> can have access to the better because then then it's already like uh, given to you that you will have different experience. While the global Ono industrial complex would have us believe that spontaneous fermentations and chemical-free farming are some kind of hippie trend, natural wine is, in fact, the true tradition of wine. It's the way of the past being rediscovered, and a part of this process is an emphasis on heirloom varieties. While those of us that are somewhat familiar with Hungarian wine will probably recognize ferment in Hirschlevelu, Anna Maria works extensively with that Kirailanka grape she just mentioned. I'd never heard of it, I didn't even know how to pronounce it until I heard her say it, and I needed to know way more about it. They, they say it originates from uh, Transylvania, so there's a part of Romania now, it was part of Hungary before. They call it uh, an indigenous variety to the Carpathian Basin. So it's, it's from around here for sure. Like the green tissue, it's really a lot, so mm. it produces a lot of green tissue. So. When you're doing uh, like shoot selection or you do leafing, it's a lot of work <clears throat> and you can't really skip those because uh, then inorganic production is just a big risk for mm. fungal diseases. And like, for example, fur mint is a variety with not a lot of vegetative growth. So that's a lot easier to work with. And, and Kirailanka is not like that. So when uh, when I'm like replacing old vines, I, I don't plant Kirailanka anymore. I, I have mm. enough of it and uh, <laughs> like something, something else now. But the wine itself, it's interesting. If you age it, it sort of picks up this uh, honey note, like honey and uh, honey blossom flowery notes. And when it's young, it's just like flowery aromas, not a lot of fruit. Uh, it's an uh, aromatic variety, so skin contact is interesting with it. The acidity can be really nice in good vintages. When you are planting new new vines now, what are you planting? Mm, I planted four mean hash levelu, sort of following the the old idea of the field blends because mm -hmm. I actually like those and I think it's nice how they sort of complement each other when you pick them together and and if you like if you can match the ripening time and the harvest time, mm. it's nice. But even if not. Uh, then you can actually adjust like acidity with, for example, the Rhein Riesling ripens a tiny bit later than Kirailanka. So mm. the acidity is always nice with them if you pick them together. So I, I did just follow the old idea of food mint and hash level, some Rhein Riesling. 
uh, in the old vineyards where I just had to replace like spots where mm. old vines died. Uh, I also planted some, I planted a new vineyard, a one hectare vineyard with hybrid varieties because uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah I, I wanted to try this because like during my bachelor, I, I did wrote my thesis on hybrid, like interspecific hybrid grapes, mostly Hungarian ones. I didn't really give a lot of thought about it like back then. It just it was just an available topic and an available professor, so I just took it. But now it's just so much attention uh, these varieties get because of climate change and sustainability and just using less pesticides and less fuel and less man hour, basically. And I had this... Uh, spot where frost was a, an issue so I couldn't really work with traditional varieties because of their sensitivity to frost spring frost mostly uh, and I thought okay what if I will just let this vineyard go then I'm not going to produce like uh, ancient Hungarian varieties on this but I'll make an experiment so I just uh, picked like I think five uh, interspecific uh, German varieties and I planted those just this last uh, autumn are you going to do head training on those as well or do you think you're going to get them up on a wire or we'll get them up on a wire mm. <laughs> the idea of head prune them and uh, that that's really appealing is just really a lot of work uh, mm. and also not really safe when you have so much wildlife around Mm-hmm. So if they're a bit higher up, it's actually better. That's the only reason. So they will be up on a wire, like, uh, I don't know, even like that high as 90 centimeter mm-hmm. or where, where you bend first. And then we'll see. And how did you make the decision about which varieties you wanted to plant there? Just uh, did a bit of research. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I knew a couple of varieties myself. I I tasted the uh, these wines some of them i liked some i didn't like i'm sure you know like this variety called solaris it's pretty common in italy Mm -hmm. germany even Mm -hmm. in denmark now because of it's uh it's a really sturdy wine and uh, doesn't need a lot of care and frost resistant and fungus resistant so it can tolerate the cold climate very well too but I didn't want to plan that because I don't have cold climate. I have super hot climate. So I had mm. to pick varieties that <clears throat> that can cope with that. Um, I picked um, this one variety called the uh, Donau Riesling. It's basically oh, yeah. a Rhein-Riesling uh, mother and a resistant father. And then I, it's the same idea, Donau Veltriner. So it's a, one parent is Grüner Veltriner and another one is a resistant. And some uh, Muscat varieties. Oh, and I picked the uh, Cabernet Blanc it's just because I was curious. Uh, I just read read things about them and I picked the ripening times so they would fit with each other. Mm-hmm. Or like at least it would make sense. Like we're just, we won't be rushed to harvest the whole thing, but so, so what's your uh, your production like in terms of bottles or cases or whatever metric? Right now, we make like ten thousand bottles a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be more, a lot more actually. But uh, about five hectare is in production. But that five hectare is is not the type of five hectare that would give you twenty five thousand bottles, which mm-hmm. you could easily get from a a well kept and 
and the well-trained vineyard, but these are just old, old vineyards and the production is a, a lot less um, than you would expect from five hectare. Uh, and I also buy some grapes uh, as you figured the, the Blaufränkisch, the Kikon, Yeah, yeah, I was about not, to ask. It's not my own grapes. Uh, it's uh, from a, a fellow producer in the Matra region of Hungary. He's also an organic producer and we just have this good collaboration. I've bought grapes from him for three years now so. oh nice so, but all together it's like ten thousand bottles but i i would have to get get it up to about twenty thousand. so it makes mm. sense like economically and yeah. i could uh, just relax a bit about like financials <laughs> yeah sure yeah. and are you gonna how much of of the low yields of your older vineyards is just a function of vine age and how much of it is you know, the result of, you know, mistreatment over the years, like, I guess, to put it another way, how much are the yields that you're experiencing right now going to be the yields that are always there? And how much are you, is there, are there steps you can take to increase it? Or in order to get to 20,000 bottles, do you need to continue planting and continue acquiring vineyards? Yeah, I think both. I mean, uh, changing the pruning definitely helped. So we, we did change to cane pruning wherever it was possible. Mm. So just just that that you bend down a shoot, you will like um, you will uh, stimulate uh, the basal buds to pop, which in like after after spur pruning a wine and not taking care of it, those uh, basal buds like close to the the head of the trunk, they could just give up producing clusters mm. because because the the flow of nutrients is just so clogged mm. so just changing that i i uh, experienced a bit of a yield pop but but i i also have to plant and replace like continuously because um, my vineyards are uh, like the distance between the rows are three meters at least and some mm. places even a, a bit bigger which is like mm. a lot of like loss of area mm-hmm. and uh, or based of area i could even say but they were like uh, designed for the tractors at the time they were used there and it is nice a lot of space you can turn as you <laughs> want but but then i i keep thinking that oh it it could be wines here you know yeah. sure but I, I can't really plant anything like inter row now because I can't have a, a tractor that's that small or narrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so I, I I am experiencing a yield growth like continuously, but I also have to like plant uh, some of the vines you can't save. I mean, it's just uh, not possible, but most of them I could. It's, I think I want to keep contributing to like making this place a bit of a better place because it's just so remote even in Hungary you know mm. far far away from everything far away from the capital and mm. it's just it just feels nice to to do something meaningful there but I also do miss the city a bit so that's mm. why I have to like keep going back some from time to time and just gather some inspiration motivation mm. coming back and then continue it I guess I, I would like to stay here and just take good care of my land. And if I could save more vineyards from just going under, you know, being abandoned, I would do that, even though 
it's not really my goal to increase the size a lot more because it is already a lot of work and mm. and if we do this well uh, we wouldn't have to go that big to mm -hmm. be able to like just be fine and not to stress about money but but i also have this kind of idea about that it's sort of my responsibility to like try to keep, keep this place alive because mm. if i'm not gonna do that it's no one is going to do that. It's also so new to me that I just let myself feel what I feel and see how am I handling this and just kind mm. of um, trying to like uh, observe my own reactions to what the things happening to me and just trying to just let it happen to me. And if I if I if I'm not gonna like it, I will change. But but now I just try to just try to be a good steward for the land, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm really keen on doing this regeneratively. So I don't know. I just see how people uh, like work the land around us, and it's not grapes, but it can be anything like other crops, like corn or wheat or beans, whatever. And everyone works the land the same way, like plowing and disking and just. Mm -hmm completely destroying the topsoil and it's just it's just really really painful to watch but it is because they don't know any better and that's how they did for i don't know for ages that's industrial agriculture and i just see like how the the fertility of the soil drops i just want to like uh, save as much land from from losing fertility as possible at least mine and that you have to start where where you are and can't really change like the neighbor's 50 hectare. If yeah. <laughs> As modern farmers try to work ever more ecologically, different ideas are coming to the foreground. Though most wine geeks have a decent grasp of winemaking mechanics, very few customer-facing wine professionals really feel comfortable discussing the finer points of farming. It's totally understandable. Agriculture is an abstraction to most modern people, and there's quite a lot to unpack. One of these developments, so-called no-till farming, puts down the time-honored plow in the service of better soil health. It's an idea Anna Maria is very passionate about, and I asked her to help us understand the cost of disturbing the soil. First of all, uh, you're just destroying the soil structure. The soil has a structure on its own, like naturally because of the plant roots and because of the microbiology in the soil like uh, fungal uh, hypha or bacteria even yeast in the soil and a lot of organic matter which is like a sort of bond to these roots and uh, the fungal hyphae and that's the natural state of the soil but you are just like cutting into this structure like a uh, the, you lose the porosity and you lose the aggregates also that are being linked to the the fungal activity. By this this king is probably by far the worst thing you could do. Plowing is really bad too. And and I I know a lot of people do subsoiling, like saying that oh that's not that bad because I'm not touching the the topsoil, but I go under. But it's, it's still very bad because you just create like a big. Um, you collapse the soil by cutting it under, so then it would just collapse like lower and lower and lower. So, mm. but uh, but I understand that you can't just like stop doing that from a day to another if your economy is dependent on it. I know mm. that, but on a long term, it's not gonna produce enough, and you're just putting the 
the artificial fertilizer in it or herbicides so it's just worsening that loop you are creating your own problems by using those products and then someone from the the company you are buying your products from comes out and takes a look and then he suggests another products for a lot of money again mm-hmm. and that products is actually keeping your problem are there some things uh, recently that you've read about or you're really curious to try or curious to learn more about I do read a lot of stuff and that's that's why it's also hard you know but at the same time like where to start or not to start or do I have <laughs> the energy to try this or do I have the money to try this or mm. So a lot of things happening at the moment uh, uh, in science, uh, which is really nice. But um, yeah, one thing I'd like to try is how I could like uh, substitute, for example, copper in mm-hmm. my vineyards. How I could like use a lot less uh, of them, and I don't use a lot now. Like I use probably half half of the amount of copper that it's allowed per year mm-hmm. per hectare in EU, but it's still. Um, it's a heavy metal and it accumulates. So yeah, things like this, how I could like replace those chemicals mm. or uh, I could like strengthen the, the immunity of the plant. And what are a couple ways you could do that? <laughs> One very obvious way is to, to work the soil really well, or mm. better say not to work the soil. So not to disturb the soil. And this is hard because, um, for example, just by driving the tractors, and we would probably spray more times than conventional winemakers spray because we had to spray more often because of the contact fungicides, and we we do compact the soil. So that's already a thing that it's sort of goes against the idea of regenerative farming. But yeah, that's the way it is like. But one way to strengthen the immunity is definitely by increasing the the life in your soil like the the plant roots the plants roots and the microbiome they they do work together and if you don't disturb that you don't um, till the soil and just try to feed the soil with a lot of like cover crops and change them as much as you can i know that the like uh, sowing a cover crop means that that it's perennial so it stays over and over winters that's a lot easier but it's not the best thing for for the soil because every almost uh, each plant is associated with different microbiome in the soil. So by just changing the cover crops, you would like change the the microbiology in the soil. And the more diverse it is, it's the the better for the plants also. Like strengthen the immunity by strengthening the connection with the microbiology. Yeah, that's, so that's that's my main uh, main focus to work with the soil. So I, I don't think that just spraying the plant itself can do the work you need. The the part you see from the plant above the soil level is just a small part of it, and so much going on under. <laughs> so this is this is something I'm interested in, and I try to find ways, and I do read a lot and listen to other podcasts and listen to people wiser than me talking about this. You're now living back in the, the hometown you grew up in. You said, actually, it's really nice. What What are some of the things about it that you really like? <laughs> so um, it wasn't like this from the first moment. On uh, I, I had to sort of 
gets used to this again, like people knowing me, like just driving or walking and you say hi to people, they know you, or even if they don't know you, they say hi and then you say hi back and you just don't do that in the city. Sometimes mm. you don't even say hi to your neighbor in the same block. And for a long time, I was really okay with that, not having to say hi to my neighbor because I'm, I think my, my basic personality is kind of introverted and like living in a village or a small town is really not like that. Then you're out there, then you need to talk to people and then you show, have to show yourself every day. And, but then I realized that oh, actually this is really nice. People, they can help me and I can just pick up the phone and say, hey, can you come over and do this and this for me or feed my dog or can <laughs> I borrow some, some gasoline and, and this actually works. It's nice. But yeah, I also miss the, the buzz sometimes. Obviously. Mm-hmm. I guess we all do. We, we all need a bit of calm, but we all need a bit of buzz as well. We have this idea with, with my mom, actually, like how nice it would be if we could like involve the, the village community into our business, like like have just a small community garden or we could give work to people working in a village like uh pensioners or mm. you know just do something nice for them and not just isolate ourselves from uh, from them or like a village is like an ecosystem you know like everything is interconnected thanks for listening everyone and thanks to Anna Maria for sharing her experience and knowledge you can follow us on Instagram at Olmsted Wine and check out olmstedwine.com for articles, producer write-ups, and our monthly newsletter. Till next time.